Well, I would like to welcome three-time PGA Tour winner John Rollins to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, John, really appreciate you taking the time today to be with us. Yeah, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you having me on. Well, uh, congratulations on the position at the Golf Channel. Um, I know you're going to be at the Golf Central desk. What are you most excited about uh, kind of in the, in the next chapter of your career, and, and how do you see your role uh, evolving potentially at the Golf Channel of what you could bring to the viewer? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm excited about the opportunity of uh, getting in there, as you say, with Golf Central and and just you know everyone at the Golf Channel. Uh, they've been great so far with my my first experience at the desk and and uh, you know kind of getting my feet wet, uh, so to speak. And uh, honestly, I'm I'm just it's exciting to you know I've had a great career. The game has blessed me in in so many ways uh, throughout the years. And I'm excited to, you know, to, to get another perspective. You know, it's been it's been fun. It's been interesting to follow golf from the the media side of things. And obviously, I love to compete, and I, I love playing in, in tournaments on the PGA Tour. But you know, it's I'm not getting any younger, and the and the players out there are, and they're hitting it further, and and the competition has gotten so deep. But I, I really look forward to trying to bring a player's perspective to the desk, someone that's been out there for a long time, that's won golf tournaments, uh, that's competed against the best players in the world, you know, bring that player perspective, but also try to analyze it and, and really give my best opinions that I can, uh, you know, when that, when that time comes. How tough is that learning curve? To, to be on TV and to, to make it look effortless? Is there, like, literally practice sessions that you guys do when it's not live to sort of get the feel for it? And, and, and how does that process kind of come about so you're actually, you know, you're ready when the light goes on? No, you know, it's, it's one of those things that there's no practice for it. We don't have any sort of, uh, you know, trial runs or anything like that. I mean, we, we know what we're going to be talking about. So we obviously know what the show will consist of, uh, you know, where we're going, who we're talking about, things like that. But as far as when the cameras go on and the lights come on, you know, it, it's it's just you and, and the guys there at the desk and, and those cameras and the viewers that you're talking to. So you just have to be comfortable with it, you know, be relaxed and, and just, you know, you've done your research, you've looked into what you're going to be speaking on, and, and from there, it's just it's delivering the message, you know. And I, and I think that from all the years of being on the other side, you know, and being the interviewed and, and things that maybe people would be talking about when I played full time, you know, having those experiences has helped because I've been in front of the cameras and, and I have talked and I have talked at you know, corporate outings and charity functions and things of that nature. So it's not like I'm, I'm uh, new to having to speak in front of people, but I do think that there's also, you know, an ability to sit there in front of the camera and give your message, deliver that to the viewer naturally, comfortably, and, and that's so far I think that I've done a pretty good job with that. Obviously, you only get better with, with practice as anything. Uh, but but you know, like I said, there's no there's no trial runs or anything else. They just put you out there. We know what we're going to talk about. You just got to talk about it. 
Yeah, and I think the experience on, on playing professionally as long as you did is an interesting one in the sense that you might see an angle of a question or a topic to bring up that if you weren't ever in that position on the other side, you may not think of it, right? Like I, I, I may see something, if I was doing it, I may not see something that you could have seen because you are a former player and did it for so long. I think, I think that's the perspective that former players do a really good job with to kind of bring the viewer a, maybe a little bit different angle or a different perspective than somebody just who's in the normal media, you know, might not see. Yeah, absolutely. I think being under the tournament pressure and the heat of battle, uh, you can definitely bring an, a different angle, a different perspective to that. As you said, I mean, there's a lot of people, most of the viewers have never been in that situation before. So like you say, for me to be able to, is feeling or what you know may be going on in their head or you know the particular shot that that person just hit you know I think that's an interesting angle um, you know to the to deliver to the viewer so hopefully I can continue to do a pretty good job with that and um, you know deliver a, a, a nice player perspective uh, but I definitely think that that is an, an advantage and something rich that can be brought to the broadcast being that I have been in those experiences that you were talking about. Is it a little bit tough at times to be critical due to the fact that you're still going to be playing a little bit under the past champions category and you have to go back out there? Are you going to have to sort of, I mean, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but if you, if you see an error, you're going to have to call it, yet there's still your peers at some level as well. How does that perspective sort of work? No, that that has been a um, an interesting dynamic uh, that I'm still you know sort of tiptoeing on right now. Um, I I think that as I'm in the position, as I'm in the position more, I think that you know you you have to call it as it is. You you have to you have to give an honest perspective, an honest opinion. Um, you know for what's going on, and and I have to be comfortable with that. I think that's what makes you know, all the broadcasters and, and all the, the you know, the, the media people good and great is that they have the confidence and the belief to know that if they make a call, then, you know, it it's their opinion, it's their feeling, but they have to stand by it. You know, when they run into a player down the road, they have to know if, if you look them in the face, you have to have the belief and the confidence to say, look, you know that that was a bad shot or you know that was a wrong decision, whatever the case may be, or, you know, what an amazing, you know, finish you just had, or that's unbelievable how you pulled that off. You know, things like that, you have to be able to stand and, and look them in the eye and say, you have to understand where I'm coming from with that on the call that I made. And I think that's what, you know, some of the guys like Johnny Miller and, and Brandel Chambly and some of these guys nowadays, I think that's what they've done such a good job with and, and really what they stand firm on uh, you know, at this point. With playing a little bit as well, is it, is it, are you finding the time to get the practice in that if, if, you know, you do make it into a tournament, you're ready to go and, and how much are you, you know, still working at, at your golf game? Well, that's, that's difficult now. I'm not practicing near as much as I used to, you know, when I played full time, as much as I would like to, uh, to get ready for tournaments. But, I try to do what I can. I try to play as much as I can when I'm at home or when I'm not, you know, in studio. Uh, and that, that's sort of the beauty of, of this side of the game is when I am at home, I have the time. I have the ability to, you know, to put into the game and the swing and, 
things of that nature. Now, again, I'm I'm nowhere near um, as active with it as I was when I was playing, you know, week in and week out. But uh, I, I do try to stay in some golf shape and form so that when my opportunities do come and are presented that I do feel somewhat prepared to play and compete. But, man, the competition is so deep and so strong now that uh, it, it's very difficult. It's going to follow up with that, what happened at the AT&T this year. So if I, re- if I have this right, you're out there to caddy, and then all of a sudden you have to switch gears because you're, now you're in, right? And then that must have been a, an interesting week. Who are you going to caddy for? And then at what point did you know now you're in the tournament, now you got to put your, you know, your player's hat on, per se, that, okay, i got to go compete against the best in the world. That must have been a, uh, an interesting week, to say the least. Oh, my gosh, that was crazy how that all happened. But uh, I was out there to caddy for a good friend of mine, Hunter Mahan. His uh, his regular caddy and, and his wife were having a baby and had asked, you know, he needed a couple of weeks off. So, obviously, Hunter, you know, was no problem at all. And he asked me, you know, one, I was going to caddy Pebble Beach in the week at L.A. And he asked me, are you in the tournaments? Are you, like, what are you doing? Are you available? Would you even consider it? I'm like, Buddy, absolutely. I, you know, I'd love to do it. Sounds like fun. I'm way out of the fields, you know, no chance of getting in. So, you know, we'll go have some fun with it and, you know, see what happens. So hadn't really played golf, uh, honestly, and, you know, it was cold back here in Dallas. So I hadn't played much golf probably for a week and a half or so and then went out there and, you know, carried the bag for three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're ready to go. And about 5.45 Thursday morning at Pebble Beach, my phone rings and wakes me up. And I'm like, because we weren't spent, we were teeing off at like 10 o'clock. And I, I see like PGA Tour headquarters on the phone. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? So I answer the phone and, you know, the lady on the other end, she informed me that they had taken a withdrawal and I am now in the tournament. And I, I was like, come again? And, you know, she explained to me what had happened, that they had nobody else on site as an alternate. I was still committed to the tournament, so that kept me in the field or on the alternate list. And because I was there, they had no one else that could play, so I got the next available spot. So now I'm in full panic mode, and I've got to call Hunter and explain to him what's going on. Him and his wife, Candy, were, were very gracious to... The opportunity, they they said, let us, you know, we can work this out. This is an amazing opportunity. If you weren't here to help us, you would never be able to to be in this situation. So I thought that was awesome of them, and I was very thankful to that. So they ended up, you know, um, shuffling some caddies and things around, and I was able to go and register. I only had three hours to my tee time when I got the phone call. So... Again, I hadn't hit a golf ball in, you know, a week and a half or so. I've been caddying. Luckily, I had my golf clubs that I brought out just with a little. Yeah. I thought you had to borrow sticks. Yeah, no, I I had my set in a carry bag just in case maybe I got to practice one afternoon when Hunter finished or something like that. So, luckily, I had that. Um, Fortunately, it rained, so it was wet. I had to wear rain pants because I didn't bring pants. I had shorts on under rain, you know, totally unprepared. Yeah. For golf. And I get thrown in the heat of battle, and somehow I go on and make the cut in the tournament, which was like a story in itself. 
but it was just an amazing week, a lot of whirlwind of emotions and things that went on. But, you know, I had fun with it. I enjoyed it. And uh, then I went to Caddy the next week at L.A., and there you go. Uh, so you didn't know your pro-am partner either? Just meet him no, on the first tee? No, I had no idea. Or? Yeah, I got to meet him on the first tee, and, you know, we, we had a, a good laugh about some things and turned out to be, uh, you know, a, a great guy, and and we had a great time, loved our time together, and, and you know, we keep in touch now. And, and those are the things that, that are great about the tour, the relationships that kind of form out there, and, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I, I had a great time. Hey everyone, it's Jason at the Sub 70 Podcast. We wanted to let you know that our 839D driver will be available in the next one to two weeks. Uh, it has everything you'd want in a modern driver. Uh, it's long, it's workable, it's aerodynamic, and with our factory direct pricing at $249, and we can custom make it exactly to your specifications here in Sycamore, Illinois, we can really dial it in for our customers. Any questions, by all means, let us know. We're always willing to help you with a fitting. And to see any information on the driver when it's available, check out golfsub70.com or contact us, and we'll be happy to help. I hope you enjoyed the conversations we had with John Rollins. Back to it. How do you enjoy caddying for another professional, and is it is it easy for you to do because you've been on the other side, so you kind of know what the pro needs? And, and from that perspective, is it is it a pretty simple transition for you to go out there and you know, caddy at the highest level, right? We're not just talking a casual round. You're talking the biggest stage on the world, so or in the world of, of golf. So how did, when you do do that for Hunter, how do you, what perspective or, you know, how do you sort of view what you need to do to get the most out of that guy that week? Well, I, you know, I, I do think that, yes, I kind of know what I like from a caddy. Now, obviously, Hunter's likes and dislikes you know, would be totally different, but, you know, I know kind of what's expected or, or what, you know, is very helpful to a player. So I think there's some benefit in that. I think from Hunter's perspective, he's not dealing with having to not necessarily teach another caddy because he would have, he could have found any tour caddy that he wanted, but, you know, he doesn't have to worry about that. We're good friends. He knows that I'm going to understand the game and how to stay out of the way and how to do all the the nuances of helping a caddy rake a bunker, get a flag, clean a ball, you know, all of yeah. those things because I've been around it and I know what good caddies do. So I think that helped a lot. Now, I also know being my first time in that situation, you know, I wouldn't say that I was a, you know, a Paul Tesori or a Damon Green or Stevie Williams or any of these guys by any means. But I do think that I knew what I was doing I didn't I didn't do anything that was harmful to Hunter, you know, that would have hurt him in any way or his game. Um, you know, I, I, I was I think it was helpful, you know, with me watching on the range. You know, I was a helpful eye because I understand the swing, things of that nature. And I think we had a good time with it. Unfortunately, in L.A., you know, we didn't play our best. Uh, you know, he wasn't uh, he showed up Friday. Well, actually, Saturday because we had some delays, but. Saturday for the second round, he had gotten, you know, whether it was a cold or kind of some, you know, some bad allergies or something that really sort of, you know, he wasn't feeling his best. And because of that, you know, we didn't play the greatest in the second round. 
um, and ended up missing the cut. So, you know, I was disappointed we missed the cut. I was looking forward to maybe having a good week and, and helping him, you know, have some fun with it and, and get a get a big week out of it. But it wasn't in the cards. I had a good time. It's I have a totally different respect for caddies, not that I ever disrespected them, but I have a totally new respect for the caddies and what they do and how hard they work. It is it is not an easy job. No, and if you if you you know I kind of go out to a few of the tour events a year and uh, just kind of sit in the background and watch and pay attention, and those caddies work their rear ends off. You know, um, out there late at nights, you know, scouting around the golf course for their guys. Like it is a full time plus job, and they're a part of the team, right? I mean, it is. It's not like the old days where just carry the bag and shut up. I mean, you can tell they are grinding and working and doing everything they can for their player to get the best out of the player that week. It's a uh, there's some talent involved in it. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, they are, you know, the the good ones or the great ones, I should say, are sun up to sundown. I mean, they are they are totally in it. They are committed 100 percent. And, you know, there is you just you know, you have to look at it. I think from a, a caddy's perspective, one shot a week, if you could save your player one shot a week, that can be huge when it comes either for that tournament potentially winning or at the end of every tournament if you can save one shot you just have to sit back and think of the amount of money that that can make a caddy a player you know with the as much money that they're playing for on the pga tour now i mean it is it has to be taken seriously and and again the ones that understand that and and, and the great ones that's what they understand and they know, and that's why they put everything they can into what they do, their player, their craft, and being prepared for those every tournament that they play in. Well, I'm going to ask you to put your analyst hat on, so there's a few topics uh, coming up here, and I'd love to get your perspective on. And, and my first one is on Patrick Cantley. Like, for him to be as good as he was an amateur then have all that time off with the, the tragedy of his friend who was his caddy and then the back injuries and no one knew if he was going to be able to play again, you know, literally. And then to come out, get his career back and have this run of consistency he's had, you know, had for the last two years to get your perspective on, you know, to be that far away from competitive golf and then to get back to the golf he has played, uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, a hundred percent. It's a, it's an amazing story. It's a sad story. Uh, but it's an amazing story in itself. And I think that, you know, for Patrick Cantlay, I think it just shows the determination. I think it shows the people that he's had, that he has around him. Uh, you know, his caddy, Matt Minister, great, great player in his own right. Great caddy, great person to, to have on the bag there. But I, I think, you know, with his teacher and, and the people that he has surrounded himself with, I think that that is the, that is the big, the big thing to it, and also his drive, his work ethic, you know, his determination to to make this comeback, to battle through the injuries and the, the devastating, you know, loss there to his friend and, and the tragic way and just everything you think that that kid has been through to be able to come back now and play at the level that he has played. I mean, 14 tournaments this year. He's played 14 times. He's had eight top tens now with a win last week at the Memorial. Ten or now 11 top 25s. I guess you'd include that win as a top 25. But 
still 11 of the 14 top 25s with that kind of record. I mean, that is that's pretty remarkable comeback. You know, now to ascend to eighth in the world rankings, sixth on the FedEx Cup list. I mean, he is he he is a force to be, and he's quiet. And he's like a he's under the radar kind of guy. He's a very unassuming guy, very quiet, soft spoken, stays to himself, does his thing. And and I think that part of that is really the reason why he's had the success that he's had coming back from this is be you know he's not he's not out there and all that you don't see a lot of social media stuff you don't see a lot of it you know a lot of the sh- things that can be distracting you know he's he's very very kind of cool and calm about everything and and that's what it takes really to be as successful as he is on the PGA Tour. Remarkable story, though. And I absolutely love his golf swing. I think it's, you know, technically it's just superb. And he seems like he just has no weaknesses, right? There's not one part of his game where you're like, well, if he wedged it better, if he was a little better putter from 15 feet, like that kid does, and obviously the results show the consistency he has. But, I mean, I I see him for the next 10 or 15 years competing for majors, being on Ryder Cup teams, like he is 1,000% legit in my mind of he has it all. He has it all. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, he's already, yeah, he's already had, you know, the two majors we played this year, two top tens, you know, was right there at Augusta uh, through 15 holes on Sunday and, you know, just couldn't quite get over the hump there. We obviously know that a guy that does pretty well at Augusta, you know, yeah. he's tough to beat when he yeah. gets in that situation. But, um, you know, he's there. He He's putting himself in the position. Now it's just, yes, I agree. Patrick Cantlay is going to be that next breakout champion winner, major championship winner. And when he wins the first one, it could be a, a floodgate effect where he just opens the door and he is there every single time that a major championship rolls around. I, I wanted to get your perspective, but I, I had a feeling that's what you were going to say. I, like I said, I love everything about his game. Um, and it could work very well at this U.S. Open we have coming up here at Pebble Beach. Uh, you played in the event, uh, I believe, in 2010. What should, uh, what should golf fans expect to see out there from that golf course, you know, for this sort of uh, major championship? Well, obviously, Pebble Beach, you know, beautiful place. Love it out there. It depends on the weather. You know, weather is so dependent. Uh, it affects so many things out there, you know, at Monterey Peninsula there. And if they get rain and the golf course is soft, you know, it, who knows? You know, you could see some low scores. Um, I, it's hard to say that for a U.S. Open. But, again, if it's, you know, if, if it's receptive, the fairways play wider when that happens. The greens, obviously, will be softer. They will get a little more beat up, so, you know, the putting could be a, a bigger issue, but I would love to see it play firm and fast. If it does, it's going to be an amazing test. Uh, that You know, when I was out there for the AT&T, you know, they had already begun making the changes to the fairways and bringing them in and kind of getting the mow, you know, the mowing patterns set the way they want them uh, in preparation for the tournament, so... If it's firm and fast, I think you're going to see some pretty high scores. But, again, it's all going to be weather weather dependent. If they get some good weather, it's going to be great. If they get some poor weather, then, you know, it's, it's just hard to tell. And, and it's going to get – I think the scores will be lower than what the USGA will want, but they won't be able to to change that if the golf course is soft and receptive. Did you take uh... – 
a week off before a major when you were playing full-time, or did you like playing yourself into form before major championships? You know, I don't, I don't know that I ever had like a, a system, whether, you know, I played, I knew I always played, you know, if I, if I was in the masters, I, I would always play Houston, um, just because, you know, it's a good setup. I thought they did a good job with the golf course, preparing you for Augusta. Um, there were times that I did go to Augusta early, like a weekend before, but you know, I never had that. I'm going to play the week before or I'm not, I think it just depended on maybe the tournament or, you know, the location, you know, where the, the U S open may have been, or obviously the British open, I would try to go over and play the Scottish open the week before to kind of get acclimated to the time change and things like that. So I, I did that uh, a number of times. Uh, the PGA Championship, again, was a, a golf tournament that I think I I treated the PGA for some reason more like a regular tournament. No disrespect to the PGA in any means, but it was just one of those where it, it had usually had a good flow in the schedule. So I could play regular tournaments and then just lead right up and go into the PGA, and, and you just felt like you were going to another tournament on the PGA Tour. You know, so that, that tournament's always had a, a little bit more of a normal feel to me than the Masters, the U.S. Open, you know, and obviously the Open Championship. But, again, I, I never really employed any sort of set system or guideline that I had to follow getting ready for major tournaments. And uh, another big one this week, the Canadian Open. It's another national championship. Uh, you have one of those in the in the trophy case. So thoughts on the uh, Canadian Open. And have you ever played Hamilton Golf and Country Club where they're having the event this week? And I'm assuming they'll kind of have it as a U.S. Open style setup with a little bit tighter fairways, a little bit more rough to kind of get the guys acclimated for, for Pebble. I, I actually, uh, the year that I defended my Canadian Open title was uh, in 2003 at Hamilton. And I unfortunately was only there for two days. I missed the cut by a shot. I shot even par for two rounds. And I missed the cut in my title defense. But, man, what an amazing golf course Hamilton Country Club is. And like you said, that will be a perfect tune-up, set-up uh, preparation for the players that are there this week. They've got a great field. And those guys that are in the U.S. Open, they are going to be – they're in store for a treat of a golf course. Uh, an amazing tournament, and it will be a, a great way for them to really hone their games in. Like you said, get ready for some some good rough, uh, some some greens that have got some slope and some speed to them. It was just a it was an awesome golf course. I remember loving every minute of it there at Hamilton. Looking back with your with your victory at the Canadian Open, um, what sort of your memories? that you have from getting that first one and notching that first win in a, in a pretty big stage, you know, for a national championship, uh, just sort of looking back, what's, what, what comes to mind when you sort of think about what you accomplished with that? Well, it really came out of nowhere. I mean, I, you know, I played great the last day I shot seven under par in the final round and was really way out of the golf tournament. And even, even at the end of the tournament, you know, I'm, I'm standing there around 18 and, and obviously I had to wait, uh, Justin Leonard and I were finished at 16 under par and Neil Lancaster came to the 18th hole at 18 under par. So he was right in the middle of the fairway, two shot lead. I'm watching all this happen behind the 18th green. He ends up 
basically making a double bogey somehow and lets Justin and I in a playoff, and it all happened so fast that I really had no time to process what was going on. It was kind of like, oh, my gosh, we're in a playoff. My caddy and I, we jump in a cart. We go to the tee, shake hands, draw numbers. We hit, we play. I make a birdie in the first playoff hole to win the golf tournament, and it was just like, what just happened? You know, you, you, it all, again, I think it was a, a blessing the way that it all sort of unfolded because it, it didn't give me time to think about what I was doing, what position I was in, the stage that I was on. It was more of just I was reacting to the moment. And, and it, it was amazing. You know, it just totally changed uh, everything in my golfing career from just my belief in myself to my time on the tour uh, to sketch, I mean, just so many doors opened up. But, I, you know, again, totally shocked that I was even in the situation, but very grateful that uh, things worked out the way it, that they did. Sounds like one of those deals where it maybe hits you a few days later of what you actually accomplished, right? It's got to be one of those yeah, things where you kind of wake up a couple of days later and go, holy, holy Christ, I just won the Canadian Open on the PGA Tour, right? <laughs> it, it... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you say you, you, you kind of, you're in the moment, it finishes, you know, you, you hang out. I had some friends and all that were there. Some sponsors at the time were from Canada, you know, my clothing apparel, uh, things like that. So I had some ties to the, you know, the Canadian market and we had a lot of fun, obviously that night after the victory. And, you know, like you said, then a couple of days, you and then I went and played the very next week. We were in Pennsylvania. So I played the very next week, and then to, to get the reception from the other players and caddies and coaches and everybody, you know, the congratulations and things like that, it, it just it took a couple of days, and then it all started to kind of sink in, and, and you know, then you started to really process what happened. And uh, with victories, and you had, you had two more on the PGA Tour, the BC Open and the Reno Tahoe, you know, comes the opportunity to play in major championships, and you've played in all of them. Was there one that best suited your game that you thought you had the best opportunity to win and you know what makes those you know major championships so special from a player standpoint and and like I said is there is there one that really stuck out in your mind that yes you you thought you had the best chance and you also just purely enjoyed that whole week more than any of the other ones I would say uh the U.S. Open probably is one that I felt fit my game the best and I say that because I was always a great ball striker I was a great driver of the golf ball uh, I know that there were I mean throughout the the kind of the peak or middle part of my career you know for a good seven eight years on tour you know I was within like top five of total driving on the PGA Tour so you know, I had enough length, but I was very accurate. So I always thought that the U.S. Open, because of the rough, because of the tough conditions, you know, things like that, that was a setup in a tournament of the major championships that suited me the best. Never played the greatest in the U.S. Opens, which is kind of weird to hear me say that and then to say I didn't play well in them. But, you know, they're tough. I mean, they're a mental test and, and – you know, I don't know. I, I just I thought that that was one that I would have done better in than what I did throughout my career for those reasons. Uh, the, the reason I think the championships, the major championships, you know, weigh so heavily in the players' eyes. Obviously, it's it's what careers are made of. It's how we. It's how people look at a player. They go back and they they look at careers that players have had, and they're like, well, 
How many majors did he win? You know, it's like it is the benchmark for for success, for, you know, the Hall of Fame, for so many things, you know, are, are just really looked at as major championship performances, and that's why players, you know, they treat them and they rank them so high. Uh, you know, they, there's so many things that come along with major championships with exemptions and uh, endorsements. I mean, you, you name it, with a major championship, it, it's going to – it elevates everything. So that's really why they mean so much to the players. What was that first Masters like and that whole experience? Totally incredible. I mean, incredible. It, it was – I would say it's probably one of the greatest things I, I experienced in the game. Uh, you know, aside from winning the tournaments, um, driving down Magnolia Lane for the first time, playing the golf course, you know, as a competitor and as a, as a you know, a player in the tournament, uh, just, just experiencing – everything that Augusta National, the history of that place, the history of the Masters, just being there and being a part, I mean, it, it, it's a dream come true. You know, you watch it as a kid, and, I mean, we, you hear all the stories. All, any tour player that has played in the Masters or that's won the Masters, whatever, we've all talked about, you know, growing up as a junior golfer, you, you, you envision and you tell yourself this putt when you're practicing is to win the Masters. It's, it's funny that nobody really talks about any other tournament. It's to win the Reno, the Barracuda Championship, or the Canadian Open, or the, it's always, you know, this six-footer is to win the Masters. It's what you always dream of, and to be able to, to, to drive down Magnolia Lane and be a part of that experience, I mean, that, again, that was that's honestly the, the pinnacle of, of what I achieved, I feel like, in, in the game, in the, in the sport. What's the coolest part about playing in an Open Championship overseas? I think it's a different experience. I think it's the it's new. It's something different that you don't experience every week. You know, you got the link style. The fans are great over there in, in, in Europe and at the at the Open Championship. You know, they understand. Um, I think sometimes in the states here, I think the fans can get spoiled a little bit to to such great golf, and, and the golf courses are totally different. You know, they're they're used to seeing players flag five irons and, you know, hit shots over bunkers that, you know, spin back and they're right by the hole. And, you know, they're, they're used to those heroic style shots. But then you go to the Open Championship and, you know, sometimes hitting an eight iron to 20 feet is a good shot. And, you know, I think that the fans over there understand that and, and they applaud it. You know, chipping a ball – around a pot bunker and bouncing it and rolling it around and, you know, and, it, and it's 10 feet away, well, that may be a good shot. And, and they acknowledge that. And I think that's, um, you know, that, that's a lot of fun to play in front of things like that. It's just a totally different experience in, in that it's unique, it's different, and that's, that's what I enjoyed uh, about going over there. Plus, the people are great. You go out and you have dinner and you know, you may go to a, a like a little local pub and have a drink with friends or somebody, and and the people that are in there, I mean, it's almost like they've known you their whole life. You know, they're in there just talking to you, laughing, you're having a great time. Just a, a lot of fun over there at the Open Championship. Uh, when you do turn fifty and you're a few years away, is is the Champions Tour that would that be something that's on your radar to kind of go back out there and 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 play competitive golf on a full time basis, or is that? kind of to be seen to see how, you know, the broadcasting goes and where your career kind of, you know, goes in the next six, seven years. 
I think I'd love to, you know, to compete on the Champions Tour. I mean, I, I feel like I've, you know, I've, I've had a long career on the PGA Tour. I, I've put myself in a position to where I should be able to, to have some status out there and have the opportunity. So because of that, I feel like, you know, I, I would love to entertain, you know, a career or the opportunity to play out there. Obviously, I've got six years to go before I turn 50, so – you know, hopefully my body holds up. Hopefully I keep myself in, you know, some playing shape, things like that. I mean, you never know. I mean, obviously if the broadcasting thing develops into something, you know, really big and, and really nice, then I have some decisions to make. But at this point, you know, I, I would love to to entertain the option of, of competing again on the Champions Tour when that when that time comes. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you're talking about how deep the competition is out on the PGA Tour and Web.com Tour and just all the younger players, how they, they, they seem to be ready to win earlier. Do you think that's truly a fair statement? Or, it, I mean, your generation was pretty good, too, when, when you guys all came out. Do you, do you really think there's that much of a difference, or is it... You know, does the equipment kind of make that difference a little bit? Do you really think the players are actually better than, you know, say even your generation coming out when they hit the when they're ready to turn professional? Is that a fair statement or is that a little bit overblown? No, I think it's a fair statement. I think that um, you know, if you look now at the PGA Tour, and I, I mean, I you know, it would take a little bit of research to figure this out, but if you look now at the PGA Tour at guys that are you can even say forty and above that are competing consistently, you know, at a competitive level that are keeping their card, that are, you know, right there, you know, you're going to be hard-pressed to find 12 guys, you know, that are 40 and above that are really, like, that are making an impact on the PGA Tour that are 40 and above. So, and, and when you do find them, you're going to look at those names, and then you're going to say, oh, well, he's a Hall of Famer. He's a future Hall of Famer. He's, you know what I mean? You're, you're not yeah. talking about just your random tour players that are still playing, you know, at that, at that age at a full-time competitive level. Back when I came on tour back in 2000, you know, I think you would have found that, one, the average age was much older, but you would find that there were a lot more guys that were in their upper 30s to mid-40s, you know, whatever, that were still winning golf tournaments, that were still competing at a high level, that were – so I think that because of that, that shows, one, the tour has gotten much younger. The tour has gotten much deeper from, you know, the 35 and down that, you know, it's driving that 40-plus, 40 40-year-old 40 player out of, you know, off the PGA Tour, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of driving that player away until he can turn 50 and I, I believe that it's solely because, one, the technology the players and, the, and the, the guys have their hands on now. You know, back before, I didn't have a personal track, man. Hardly anybody did, if anybody did. Maybe a company had one, and that was later down the road. Um, you know, now the, all the technology that these guys have, they, they all have nutrition coaches, massage therapists, fitness coaches, swing coaches, mental coaches. I mean, you name it. They've got, you know, a gamut of of instructors that they're going through that are traveling on a weekly basis. They've got the best technology. The golf ball has changed tremendously. The drivers, the technology has changed tremendously. And, and the style of the game 
has changed. I mean, you used to have to be a shot maker. You used to have to curve the ball, control spin, control your trajectory, do all of these things. You don't have to do that now. You, you don't, you know, that, that's what I see when I play now some of these, these younger 24, 25-year-old kids that they, they don't really have to worry about, you know, balls spinning back too much or, you know, this or that. It's a hit it 350, get as fast as you can club head speed, hit it as far as you can and get really good with your wedges and your putter. And that, to me, is yeah. where the game is right now. And I think that that's part of the reason why a lot of the older players have started to fizzle out and kind of fade away from, you know, full-time playing privileges on the tour, and the game has gotten younger. But I, I do think that as a whole, the the, the ta- I don't want to say the talent has gotten – I hate to say the talent's gotten better because I think the guys that were on tour when I was back in 2000, 2002, 3, everybody was still super talented. I mean, you had to be to be on the tour. But I think that as a whole, the talent level has gotten way younger and way deeper than it was probably back then. Yeah, and I kind of think, I mean, we're, we're pretty close to the same age. So, I mean, we, you know, when we were kids <clears throat> growing up playing, right, like if you swung that hard at it and missed it, the ball spun all over the place and it was a, it was a disaster. So you had to have a little bit more control. Um, and it's probably hard for somebody in their 40s to sort of unlearn what we've learned and, and go to compete against 25-year-olds who have had that equipment since they've been playing competitively, right? So let's say in the last 15 years, the ball, you know, where the Pro V1 came out in what, 02, 03. So those kids have never had that older type of equipment, which you kind of had to adjust your swing with. And it, I'm wondering, because they've been on that curve of that, let's just call it modern equipment from that point, is their ascension to to playing at the highest level a little bit easier because of that equipment. And now at 23, they're ready where maybe the previous generation had to kind of learn their way through it a little bit more and figure out, okay, this can work on the web, but now I'm on the PGA tour. I have to kind of do this for my game to be competitive where now it's sort of like, here's the formula, bang at 350, like you said, work on your wedges and, and, and put the tar out of the ball. And no matter if you're on the web or Canadian tour, or the PGA tour, that, that works. Is, is that a fair assessment of where I'm kind of potentially thinking how the changes and why these guys can play really high level at a younger age? Wait, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that is that is the key. That's that's the difference. You know, I mean, the learning curve has been, I mean, com- almost taken away. You know, these kids will come out of college now, and I mean, a lot of them nowadays they're, they're coming out of college. They go right to the PGA ranks, and and they're winning golf tournaments. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're winning within a year, within two years. I mean, it, you know, it, it would take, I mean, you look back in the past, I mean, it would take a lot of guys two, three years just to get back and forth on the tour to keep their car. Mm-hmm. And, and now kids are coming out of college, like I said, and they're winning whether it's web tour, whether it's, you know, PGA tour, you, you name it. I mean, they're ready to go. And I, I also think that you have to then – you have to give credit to the college programs, to the college coaches, to the to the universities that these these athletes that they're coming out of, because they now have changed. They not only have changed, you know, their coaching philosophies, but they've had to because of the the curve and technology, because of the things, the resources that are now available to them as a coach, to their team, as players. 
you know, these players now, the fitness is a much more, it's an integral part of every, every team at the high level in college that are, that are successful teams. Fitness is, is a main factor in their success. They're dealing with the technology. So that's obviously helped a lot of that. They're playing with the modern day, you know, technology in the game. They've got all these resources available to them from statistical analysis to you name it. They, they've got access to it. So that is helping these players at the college level develop into PGA Tour players really before they've left college. Yeah. So then yeah, when they get yeah. and then they get to the PGA Tour and they walk on the range and they play practice rounds with these guys, whatever it may be, plus they've, they've all become such good friends at the college level that they, they're on tour at the same time. They're playing practice rounds. They feel comfortable. They're like, well, I've already played with this guy. 500 times and I beat him, you know, like a drum for two years at college, my last two years. So I'm not scared of this guy. I'm not scared of this. I'm not scared of that. They go out and they're ready to play and they're ready to win. Yeah. It's, and I've had some of the younger guys in the podcast and talked to them, um, you know, winning early. And it's exactly what you said that they're just, you know, uh, talk to TK Kelly about it. It's like, I played against Bryson my whole career. Like if he can do it, I can go out on the, on the Latino American PGA tour and win. Like it's no problem. Like they're con- they, they've got that swagger and confidence that even at a young age, there is no more while I'll try to get my feet wet and see how it goes. Like they're ready and they're fearless and they blast it and they, and they can really, really play. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch how quickly they become world-class good anymore. In, in my opinion, it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon compared to how golf has been for so long. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a it's a totally different game. And I think you know I saw something where it may be, and I may be just a touch off on the number, but I think it's it's down to like maybe fifty two starts or something on average now that players find their first victory on the PGA Tour. That's insane. I mean, you have to think fifty two tournaments. I mean, that you know it sounds like ah, it's fifty two time, but I mean that that's really depending on some of these kids that, I mean, they play week in and week out, you know, they hardly ever take a week off. I mean, that's, that's within two years, you know, they're, they're finding their first victory at the highest level in the game. So it, it's a, the learning curve is, you, you say it has shrunk. I mean, I say the learning curve is gone. You know, there is no learning curve. It's just, you show up and you, you're ready to go. I always find this question interesting. So, you know, after you turned pro in college, you know, what was your pathway even to get to the web.com? I know you got out there pretty quick, but did you do the mini tour grind? And who were some of the guys, if you did that, that, uh, that you played with back in the day? Yeah, I came out in 97. I tried, I, I missed Q school or second stage. I, I made it to second. I missed finals by a couple of shots. So I had no, you know, no status. I played my first year professionally on the Hooters tour uh, in 98. And I thought that was great. That gave me the experience of learning how to travel, learning how to make cuts, learning how to manage time, things like that. Um, went back to the school, got my, at, at the time, it was the Nike tour still uh, for 99. I played out there, didn't play very well. Again, just, it was, the, it was the learning curve for me. Back then, the learning curve existed. And, you know, I was learning the golf courses. I was learning, you know, how to, get comfortable at that level. I was learning all sorts of things and, you know, didn't keep my card that year, went back to the Q school. And then I think through those two years, 
it, it helped me develop into, you know, a PGA Tour player. I ended up getting my card on the PGA Tour for 2000 from the school, from the, you know, back then it was a six-round final stage qualifying school. And got my tour card in 2000, but I lost it my first year. You know, I, I didn't play great. I didn't play bad. I just wasn't comfortable. You know, I had a lot to learn, and I wasn't comfortable, but I learned a lot from that first year. Went back to the – then it changed to the Buy.com Tour in 2001. I won my first tournament at Hershey, Pennsylvania, and finished sixth on the money list, graduated back up, and then ended up winning the Canadian Open in 2002. And, you know, everything was kind of off and running. So I, I just – I think that – having to go through those years and having to go through that just really helped me develop into a, I don't know, a more well-rounded, balanced player to have some longevity on the PGA Tour. Yeah, and that Hooters Tour is tough, man. That's a, that's some, oh my you got to pay your money for the entry fee. And that, there's some tough characters playing on that one in the sense of it's kind of, it's, it's ruthless, isn't it? In the sense of you can, you can make money, but man, you can lose money really quick too out there. Oh, absolutely. Like you say, you know, you're traveling around, you're paying your entry fees, you're paying for hotels, you're paying for your food. I mean, you're paying for everything and there's no guarantee you're going to be making any kind of money. You got no endorsements, really. You got nothing, you know, none of that sort of stuff. So it is a, you know, it is like a, a gamble every week you tee it up on the Hooters tour, but it, it's great because it puts that that competitive fire under you. You you know that, you know, you, you get to play under that pressure of knowing, you know, I've got to, I mean, I've got to perform here. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm losing money, you know, I'm going backwards. And, and it puts that drive into you. So again, I think those two years, that 98, 99 on those tours, I think that really was beneficial to me in a lot of ways uh, and, and really helped me develop into the, the player on the tour that I became. Do you miss Q school with, with that pressure cooker of the six rounds, or do you think it's a better system now of how they do it through the web and, and earning it throughout the year? I like it the old way myself. I, I like the I like it because I, I know really why they did what they did, why they made the changes, but I like the Q school. I like the stories that came out of the Q school. I think they've taken away from the story of a guy out of college or someone you know, that comes out and, and he makes his way through Q school and then he goes on to have a great rookie season on the tour. And, th you know, now a guy's on the web tour for a year, you know, or however many years, and he gets in the finals and he, yeah, he plays four good tournaments and then he gets his card. And, you know, I, I think that the story is kind of gone a little bit. You know, I think that the John Huh comes to mind. He was a guy that, you know, got his first year on tour right before they changed to the new web finals uh, for, for tournament format and he got his tour card and he came out on tour and and like played amazing his rookie season and and it was a story nobody had ever heard of john huh and then all of a sudden you know the guy's a multi multi winner on the pga tour and I, I just think that i think it's great that you give a guy the opportunity to come right out and have a direct shot to the pga tour now it's like you don't have that opportunity you have to go through the web.com tour, and, and that's not easy in itself. I mean, that's a very difficult tour to, to get qualified for the finals. You know, so, so they've taken that away from those players, and I just I don't know that I, I really agree with that. 
Well, I've got a few more quick hitters here, and we'll get you out of Dodge. So uh, whatever kind of comes to your mind on on the next couple I got. So okay. uh, the most underrated PGA Tour player you played with in the seasons that you were out there, and the, and the general public, for the most part, does not realize how great that player truly is. They just kind of fly under the radar. Is there anyone who comes to mind fits that category? Wow. Um, that's really something I've never – I've never paid, yeah, I've never paid attention to it. I, I hate that, um, oh man, let me see. I could come to. Well, we can go back to that one if you need to. If it, if it's yeah, let me, let me, think, let me try though. to think on that. If somebody pops in, I'll, I'll shout them out. But, uh, right now I got to give that a little bit of thought. That's, that's a question I, I've never really given much thought to. It's an interesting answer of what you get a lot, right? It's of, of somebody, yeah. then it kind of hits them. They're like, yeah, man, he was, you know, he has like three wins. And he just kind of flies under the radar, but that dude has been good for like 20 years. Good. You know, and then you're kind of like when it hits the player, then they're like, it's him. So I'll, I'll give you a couple seconds on that one. Um, favorite non-major stop on the PGA tour. And what made that tournament in town such a great week that you, that you just truly enjoyed visiting every time you could? Uh, you know, I, I have two really. I, I would, and they're both West coast. I love Tory Pines. And I love Riviera. Um, I, you know, to, I love Torrey Pine. We love the area. My family, you know, we, we just, we had a great hotel we stay at. We had great restaurant. We just love the area of La Jolla, San Diego, you know, the golf course there at Torrey. We, we just loved our time there. And I played well there. I had a chance to win, uh, you know, the, the farmer's insurance. Uh, I was close a couple of times. But, you know, losing to Nick Watney uh, the one year there, I believe it was 08 or 09, um, you know, that was that was a lot of fun and, and got close there. But love Torrey Pines. And then Riviera, I mean, let, hey, it's Riviera. You know, the history there. And and I think that Riviera, one of the reasons I've loved it so much is, is it's a golf course that despite the technology, despite everything about it, in the game, the way it's gone, Riviera is still a golf course that has withstood the test of time. And it's a golf course that as a player through 18 holes of golf, chances are you will hit every club in your bag. And I think that that's a unique feature on a golf course nowadays. It's not something that you encounter on a, on a weekly basis. And I think that that just shows how good the golf course is. And I, I always enjoyed Riviera Country Club. Well, my next question, I might have one answer from that from that answer already. But if you could pick two or three of the best golf courses architecturally in the world that don't have to host a tour event or anything like that, is there two or three that come to mind that you've had the you know uh, ability to play that just stands out that they are so good architecturally? I love Ocean Forest in Sea Island, Georgia there, or St. Simons. Uh, I think Ocean Forest, it's not a tour event, obviously, but I think golf course-wise, I think it's uh, it's in my top five list of golf courses I've played. Uh, I've never played St. Andrews. I'm sure that would be up there. I know that's a totally different kind of design and architecture uh, than anything else, but uh, I never had the opportunity to play an open there at St. Andrews. Um you know, I, I think that, um, well, obviously Riviera is going to be, I mean, that's one of my favorite golf courses of all time. But I also I also like Quail Hollow there in Charlotte. 
I know they've made a lot of changes to it, but I, I like uh, I like the the architecture. I like the design of Quail Hollow, and and have always thought that was one of the you know one of the best golf courses that the that the PGA Tour um, that they play. You know, we played all year was Quail Hollow. Oh, uh, Shaughnessy is a great one up in Canada as well, where they played the Canadian Open a few times. That's uh, probably one of the hardest golf courses I've played. Have you ever had a chance to play Pine Valley? I never have played Pine Valley. I, uh, I, I've had one of my early backers uh, coming out of college was a member there or is a member there, but never had the opportunity to go up and, and play uh, Pine Valley. You know, I hate that, that I, I never did, but unfortunately, uh, you know, it never was in the cards, but I'm sure that would be up there if I ever had that, that chance. Yeah, it's always interesting. That that one usually pops up where the guys who have played it, I'm just curious if you played it, say, oh, it's just the, there's a reason it's the number one golf course in the world kind of year in, year out, that architecturally it's just that good. Hey, you still might have a chance to, you know, you got a little bit more free time. You might be able to run up there on a on a yeah. late summer weekend and go play at Pine Valley. If you do, give us a field report of how it is. Uh, Absolutely, the, the, I will. Anybody come to mind yet of the uh, sneaky yeah, good? Yeah, so- I would say, and, and this may not be, well, this is probably somebody you wouldn't expect me to say, but I would say, because he's he's had success recently as well, but I would say that Charles Howell III is a player that that comes to mind of a, of a player that is, is never ranked as high for the success, for the career money, and for the, the top tens and the, the seconds, the thirds, the five, I mean, the, the amount of starts and the tournaments that this guy has played in his career and the career money and success he's had to, to only have the, the number of wins. I mean, come on. I mean, this guy was like forever, you know, the best player by far to like only have like one win. And he, and he was like a top 30 money winner every single year. It seemed like, and he never would win golf tournaments and, and he never would break the top, I mean, you could say, I don't even know what his highest ranking ever has been in the world ranking, but I don't know that he ever got above the top 30 in the world. But he's like an you know, ATM. It's it's like 2 yeah. to $4 million every year, and he's done it for like 20 years. Like, to be that good, that consistently good for that period of time, and it doesn't look like it's stopping. I mean, he won't, you know, win, what, late last year, and he's always yeah, had he a solid season this year. Yeah, he's going to do this yeah. for like thirty years, literally. And oh, by the time it's, it's over, he's going to make a hundred. Yeah, he's going to make a hundred million dollars, and people are going to be like, "He's made that much." He, you know, he's going to play in what six hundred and fifty tour events, probably at the pace he's going, or six hundred. He's. I agree with you. Like he is to do what he has done for that long. He's stupid good. Like to be that consistent for that long with all the changes and for you know on the tour in twenty years for him to still be that competitive. It's a he's on an amazing run of consistency, in my opinion. But I mean, he you know he and he shows up every week when he plays. He shows up and and rarely is he ever in the conversation of a guy that you know people are looking at to win the tournament. And I think it, it stems from not winning as, as often as he probably should. But I, I mean, it's just you have to sit back and think. My gosh, I mean, you start talking about guys in career money, and Charles Howell's name hardly ever comes up. He just is a, a totally under-the-radar, completely overlooked player that, like you said, has been a 2 to $4 million earner for, I mean, as, as long as I can remember. And, and he's one of those guys you talked about, like, in their 40s. 
I, I promise you at 47 years old, he'll still be fully exempt and playing competitively on the PGA Tour. He's just that good. 100%. 100%. He's just that good. That's a great, that's a great call. I mean, I didn't think about him, but like when you brought that up, that's, that's exactly the kind of guy, right? That I don't think the average fan realizes how good, or you would understand it for, to play, you know, that good for that long, just how hard that is to be fully competitive for that period of time without ever falling slightly off the radar. That he's PGA Tour good making two to four million dollars every season. That's a hell, I mean, that man can play golf. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, thanks so much for your time. Look forward to seeing you on the Golf Channel and, and getting your perspective. And uh, like I said, if you got to Pine Valley, send us a quick message and uh, let us know how it worked for you. Yeah, I'll do it. I appreciate you having me. Had a good time. And, uh, you know, thanks again.